0: You're listening to POP, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Well, listen, Man Parish, this is really an honour. And I have to say, first of all, have you got clean underwear on, as you promised?
1: Um, oops, I forgot. I may have a few skid marks, but that's okay. It's, it, it, no, no sharks, let's put it that way. <laughs>
0: Oh well, I got none on because I promised as well. But <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
1: um,
0: <laughs> this is going to go all the wrong direction, I know. Always.
1: <laughs> oh, Let me tell you something. It's only down from here, folks. So <laughs> get ready for a bumpy ride.
0: Exactly. So listen, I want to take you back really, really early when you were very young and living with your parents in
1: when I was in the uh, when I was in the womb. Yes, I. remember. When you were in the womb, well.
0: when you were with your parents in uh, in Brooklyn. And Mm -hmm. just wondered what sort of music or cultural influences there were in the family that you were surrounded
1: by. We didn't listen to radio. There wasn't... Well, there was... Those days were transistor radio because I'm old as fuck. So those were the old uh, transistor radios. It was never music. If it was ever on, it was like talk or news radio. And um, uh, I... I had a paper route, so I bought a record player, and the first record I bought was Grand Funk Railroad Live double album, not because I knew who the group was, but because you bought two records for the price of one, (laughs) you know, I just grabbed the first thing that was like on sale, and uh, listened to that, God knows, but there was no music in the house, Uh, even in the car, I think they listened to talk radio, Um, my my, my father played piano really badly, that um, ba-ba, um, ba-ba, left hand going um, and it drove me crazy. I had two or three piano lessons and the teacher uh, hit me across the knuckles for hitting a wrong note. And I called her a fucking dirty cunt at eight years old, and I never took piano lessons after that <laughs> because she didn't want to deal with me. So, <laughs> gives you an idea of where I was coming from. So, there was very little music in the house, and to this day, I can't read or write music. So, uh, but I, I do everything by ear, including orchestrations and choirs and all that kind of stuff. So,
0: did they put uh, any was- value on, on culture or creativity? Did I put value on cultural No, your parents, your parents, did they put any value Um, on that?
1: No, because, you know, there wasn't opera, you know, there wasn't church singing on Sunday, there there wasn't uh, visits to anything. I think at one point, my mother probably realized I I was a big puff and took me to a Broadway show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, for the most part, no. I mean, it was just a very middle-class working household. My father got up at 8 in the morning and didn't come back to 6 at night. And uh, my mother kept house. And uh, there wasn't much music, you know. But the school, came home. The, t- the television was on all the time. That was the source of entertainment and noise in the house. But I mean, culturally, I- there wasn't any mind-expanding things. That happened later when I left home. I, I discovered libraries and museums and stuff like that. Uh, very very because, early on, no.
0: Going back, because your, your mother uh, was a schizophrenic, I understand.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> back in those days, it's different than it was today. Like, now we're very aware of mental illness and forgiving or, or, or whatever it is. But back then, we were just a crazy family. <laughs> My mother was weird. And... Um, I suffered a lot from it. So we could go on forward. I was actually sexually abused, but not by my parents, but by a doctor and then by a pedophile that i lived with when I ran away from home. But as a result of all that, I've had to have therapy, which is great. So I figured out my mother's situation. She was um, schizophrenic, bipolar, or bipolar manic, which turns into schizophrenia, you know, it's all in the same extremes. And I think she wanted me to be so perfect that her schizophrenia, you, you, you she, she was absolutely extreme. You know, you have to be perfect. You have to, you know, say please. And if you don't, you know, we tie you to a radiator and turn up the steam, which she tried. I escaped or knock you unconscious. Or I remember one day I was lying in my bedroom and she came in at midnight and I was asleep. Uh, are you awake? And I'm like, what? What happened? Oh, you're not awake. Get out of my house and throw me out in the snow in my underwear with nothing else. And the neighbors came and put a blanket around me. But in those days, um, uh, in those days, uh, you didn't call the police. There wasn't a child services and all that kind of stuff. You were just the crazy family. (laughs) How did that make you feel? Oh, it was terrible because, because in addition to that dysfunction, my mother couldn't keep a tidy house. So it wasn't like hoarders where there was dirt everywhere, but there was neat, like, like, uh, uh, uh what would you call it uh she was compulsive in the way uh the house was very disorganized like a hoarder but nothing dirty neat piles of newspapers neat piles stuff would come out of the washing machine and the dryer and she'd put them on the couch in neat piles but everything was piled up we'd, we'd come home and put um uh, uh, uh bags of groceries on the table and there'd be like piles of um you know boxes lined up in a row and uh mm-hmm cans and canned goods and stuff lined up in a row. So I couldn't have friends come home and visit. I always visited other friends' homes. And I was always in fear that people are going to find out that, oh, you're that crazy family. Or how come we always go to my house, not yours? Or if they came in the house. At one time, my closest friend, I said, look, you can come by. But just understand my mom's not feeling well. And he came by and it's like, oh, my God. Like, this place is, like, not dirty, but, like, crazy you know what I mean but you see little old ladies and they have plastic bags and paper bags you know neatly packed up so it wasn't like gray gardens where they were living on a bed you know and having food everywhere it wasn't like that but it, it, it was very stressful for, for, for a child I was eight years old you know I was discovering the world you know and uh, it was incredibly dysfunctional and my father couldn't deal with the fact that my mother had mental illness So he had horse blinders on. He came home and just stared at the TV while everything blew up around him. And ironically, my sister didn't get any of the abuse because I'm, you know, my family was an old school family. So the firstborn had to be perfect kind of kind of routine. So it was very, 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 very rough, very
0: rough. So how come you went to the. Performing Arts School in New York, the Fame School, as it's sort of known. How come you you went there when you come from a family that really wasn't sort of culturally well, interested? In well, I
1: think I think my mother knew I was different, <laughs> fabulously different, <laughs> and she enrolled me in like a an acting school when I was like ten years old. Uh, so I, I I think that went off well. I got a little independent movie for the Board of Education on deaf kids and so I wasn't that that performing on school was dancers musicians and actors in fact it was all the guys were gay they called it an all-girls school even though it wasn't but uh, um, my mother um, there was something like 2,000 kids and they only took several hundred for that first year of class and my mother being a nut worked in my favor because she marched up there and banged on the door and demanded that her son get an audition or, you know, she's going to blow the place up. And I got an audition a week before school started. And that's how I got into it. Uh, I went in, the, in, in an audition and got it. And four months later I was thrown out <laughs> with what? Freddie Prince. I don't know if you guys had it in Europe, but there was Chico and the man. And uh, he was quite the class clown. He would run down the hallway, open the door and, You know, your mother sucks cock and shut the door and the whole class would crack up. And uh, I was really bad in school, you know, uh, whoopee cushions, fart jokes, uh, you know, spitballs, you know, because I came from a dysfunctional home. So I had a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic, a lot of stress, and I vented it the only other place away from home, which was school. So I I was never arrested. I was never a bad kid. I never hurt anybody. I never get into fights but I couldn't sit still because bubbling under this beautiful little cherub face was, you
0: know, fucking hell.
1: <laughs> you know, yeah. 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 So. And
0: this school was in the middle of the sort of 42nd oh, it was street. Pool area, wasn't I it? Mean,
1: Now that I look at it, it was fucking great. It was in the middle of times square in the seventies. When you see those black exploitation movies, guys with fur pimp hats and, you know, hookers with just little things covering their nipples. I mean, it was 42nd street at its, Dirty! I remember seeing Deep Throat up on the, you know, Linda Lovelace Deep Throat up on the things, are going, "Oh my God, I love this!" You know, but they wouldn't let you out of class because you were ninth graders, you were you were you were children to go to lunch. So they locked, literally. I mean, it was a fire trap, if God forbid, if anything happened. But they chain locked the doors, <laughs> and kids. Um, we we uh, the lunchroom was the gym, and they put out tables and. I think the school bought a record player and they had a very early DJ or just somebody playing records. And just like the movie fame, we didn't spill out onto the streets on top of the taxi cabs. People would dance on the tables because there were dancers and, and it was, it was a wonderful, you know, lunchtime. And then uh, we'd have to go back to voice and diction class where you tap your teeth on the top with your tongue, you know, and all that. And I was like talking like this. I was from Brooklyn. You know the rain in Spain it was like that my fair lady saying you know <laughs> roll your arms you know you're in the theater so,
0: so did, uh, did did this Eliza Doolittle person go to 42nd street in the evening <laughs> <Were> you- <laughs> well uh,
1: I M- many Eliza Doolittle did because you had to walk I had to walk past it to get to the subway And then one day I noticed the men's room and all these guys going in there. And I walked in and they're all sticking their, their schlongs out. And I thought, well, they're not peeing. I wonder what's going on in here. (laughs) So I've discovered my first, as you call it over there, cottage. We call it a tea room and my first cruising situation. So on the way home, I'd make a pit stop, you know, nothing happened. I was too young, not too young, but I didn't do anything, but I was like, Oh, I, I got to stop in the Basel on the way home and look at all these guys with their schlongs hanging out. Free, free peaks for, you know, a ninth year old kid, ninth, ninth grade kid. You know what I mean? So, you know, hormones are kicking in. So, um, but you did get to experience it. I, I remember hookers coming up. Me, hey, baby, you want to go out? And I'm like, I want to go home. She goes, I want to go home too. <laughs> but I got to make money or I'm going to get beat up. I said, well, all right, honey, you know. Sorry, at the, you're barking up the wrong tree.
0: <laughs> at the same time, you were also um, at the Metropolitan Opera, weren't you? Like, yes, yeah, so you had some sort of job that there. That was in the
1: music department. Was in the choir, <clears throat> and we became friends. And um, uh, uh, he said, "You know, in the evening, see, I didn't have, I didn't have a curfew. And My mother maybe didn't have a sense of time, but I can come in at eleven o'clock at night. Nobody, like, where were you?" Uh, and if they did, I didn't give a fuck. You know, at that point, life was so bad. He said, I work at the opera, and you 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 become something called an extra or a supernumerary, I think is the term. You're you're the person on stage that holds a spear, or you're the army, or the crowd of villagers. And and I lied. I told everybody I was 19 when I was 13 because I was very tall, you know, six foot something. I was quite tall, six three or something like that, which led to the doctor, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I worked at the opera and um, my mother uh, found, uh, I I, I would come home with like grease paint in my head. Where were you? I'm working at the opera house. Well, she, I don't know, found out that there were notorious homosexuals working at the opera. They were fucking opera queens, right? And nobody bothered me or touched me, you know, but but she wrote a letter that um, my son can't be around notorious homosexuals. He's only 13. And they went, you told us you were nineteen. Get out. You know, w- w- rightly so. I remember one day one of the guys um, came in and said, "I just got organic mescaline. Wouldn't it be funny if we all drop acid and go on stage?" And of course, at thirteen, I was like, "Sure!" So we all did a head of acid, and we're standing. We're, we're in loincloths with orange paint and spears and sandals. We're standing on the edge of the stage and acid kicks in for everybody and we're marching through like the desert or something like that it was like aida or something and there were horses and a chariot in front of us and we get on stage and those were the old incandescent lights at thousand watts so it was really warm i'm tripping oh it's it's orange and yellow and the sun and in between my toes, I could feel that really warm sand as we're washed across the stage. And when you got the other side, we had all stepped in horse shit with our sandals and our feet were full of horse shit. So they had to pull us up to the side and spray our feet That You're not going in the hallway. Come here, quiet, quiet, quiet. But I spent a lot of that time. Um, the Met had elevator stages that went down three or four stories. They would put the scenery on there, raise it up so they didn't have to physically move scenery. And you weren't allowed to be on stage because you could fall down two or three flights, uh, you know, while that stage pit was open. And I used to hide between the curtain and the piscina march and watch the, how the theater operated and, and my love for drama and theater, which went into my shows, came from that. You know, even though I was doing an actor at high school performing arts, we were just learning voice and diction and and, and improv. But here right. I was on the great stage of the Metropolitan Opera House, and an education you couldn't get anywhere. Watching them rig something, watch the lights, watch the scrims come down, and
0: it's quite you know. That's that. That's I thought. Wow, I could do this. You know, I could do this. What triggered the decision to leave home so young?
1: Well, my mother was very abusive, in about a year. Uh, well, from uh, I left home at fourteen. I was growing so tall and so fast at 10 years old my mother took me to a doctor she found out through the New York City school system that there was a study going on for exceptionally tall children and I can't say the name of the place because part of my deal and settlement is a non-disclosure agreement but the doctor turned out he, he he was a pedophile and I'd go into the office and get naked and it was a growth doctor and he'd start taking Polaroids and sit on my lap and he would have an erection and putting his fingers in my rectum and telling me I have to masturbate and let me show you how to do it. And he'd drop his pants and do it. This went on for three years. And I mean, I remember going home and my rear end was bloody. My underwear was bloody and I threw it in a neighbor's uh, bin because I thought my mother would find it and blame me for what he did to me so by the time i was 13 and going to high school performing arts i was getting away from home more often and my mother was getting sicker and sicker and i decided you know that's it i'm out of here and um, um that same kid worked at the uh, took magic classes at the ymca and this is a funny story and and i went with him to magic classes rather than being home And it was in the basement of the YMCA on 63rd Street. And I had to run to the bathroom and I probably was squatting to pee. (laughs) And there's a little hole in the wall and a penis comes through, a dick comes through. (laughs) My first glory hole. So I got scared at 14 and I ran out into Central Park right into what was the gay cruising area of central park at that time and the, the guy follows me you know what I mean he gives me his key and says I live upstairs at the Y why don't you come up so we go up we fool around and afterwards I start crying my mother my this my that I didn't even know if I was gay or straight or what and he goes don't worry honey you know if you, you you can always come here and I'll you know you have refuge here well I went straight home packed my bags came back and knocked on his door and he's like what are you doing? And I said, "You said I could come here if there was a problem." So, I wound up moving in uh, for about, uh, for for a couple of uh, for a couple of weeks, and then we got an apartment. And he worked at the famed Continental Bathhouse in New York. And I he he I used to ask him where he works, and he wouldn't tell me. And I followed him one day, and uh, he went in, and you had to pay to get in. You didn't show ID in those days, but if you had the money, they'd probably let you in. And the security guard said, "All right, get out of here." And I, you know, batted my eyelash and I went, hey, mister, you know what I mean, see you later, honey, you know what I mean, let me in. And he let me in. And I remember sliding, he, uh, Steve, who I was with, the guy, he worked as a short order cook uh, at that place because there were no clocks you could stay for 24 hours. And if you wanted to order a hamburger or breakfast, there was like a little uh, diner counter. And I remember sliding along the walls and a show, it was a Saturday night and the show was starting and I sat down and I saw Bette Midler. Uh, perform uh when she was a nobody and she said i'd like to introduce my band and this is george the drummer and blah 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 and this is barry manlow our piano player so that's up on youtube you can actually see the night that i was there you don't see me but you can see the night that i was there so here i was 14 years old around Hundreds of notorious homosexuals. <laughs> and I used to sneak in all the time, follow him to work and sneak in. I remember Rudolf Nureyev, the dancer, laying on his belly with a guy pounding him, and the door was open, and three or four guys were jerking off, looking in the door because he was an exhibitionist. He was a ballet, you know, ballet, dan- ballerina, right? Well, but a, ba- a ballet dancer. So he liked putting on a show on and off stage. But that kind of behavior and the sexual freedom in New York uh, of the 80s was 70s, was late 80s, 70s, 80s was not strange it sounds very strange and shocking now but that was culture gay culture you know what i mean and yeah you know i i I say it this way if you have a bunch of men in a room with nobody to say no and they're all gay or you know and they're all horny who's going to stop it you know there's nobody to police it so things get crazy pretty quickly (laughs)
0: I mean, OK, that side is, you know, uh, very liberal, very open. Um, and then New York was also like the Wild West in a lot of ways. During it was that like era, the Wild
1: it? West. Mostly um, I grew up in Brooklyn. It was a, an Italian and Jewish neighborhood. And the mafia was in my neighborhood. And the biggest mafia kingpin, his son at 12 years old, babysat me. So I grew up. You needed something. Hey, what do you need? I'll get it for you. You know what I mean? I need a TV. Don't worry. It fell off the truck. You know, give me $10. So all the clubs and everything was mafia run. Um, uh, You walked in Central Park at night, you got killed. You know what I mean? uh, If you were gay, ah, another fag, drag queen got beat up. Uh, You know, so it, it was the Wild West and it was much different. I remember coming out of gay bars and and cops would follow you and and, and and beat you with a nightstick or hit you in the crotch really hard. You know, what are you doing there? Looking for dicks? You know what I mean? So it was totally with people like, now, oh my God. But that was, yeah, hey, you're you, you, you tough, toughen up, buttercup. You, you know, you had to survive, you know? And when I left home, um, after living with that guy, it didn't work out. I wound up going, now I knew where the gay area of Central Park was. And I remember sitting there and I was 14 years old and this guy comes up to me and says, hey, you, you know, you want to come back to my place for, uh, you know, some milk and cookies, ha, ha, ha. Well, he was like 33 years old and I'm 14. And he asked me how old I was. And I thought, I'm not going to lie. I said, I'm 14. He became more interested. So I, I we wound up going back to his place. And he said, oh, you could move in. And I think I did like right away or something like that. Well, it turns out he was a pedophile, obviously. A 33-year-old guy picking up a 14-year-old boy. And he would tell me stuff like, don't worry about your parents. Um, I've uh, written to the state and I'm now your legal guardian. I mean, all this crazy stuff that as a kid I wouldn't understand, but then we started, well, he would get these these brown envelopes in the mail and and open them up and his drawer was filled with them. In those days, when you got porn, they were on eight millimeter film and they were all older guys with young boys. And I started thinking, I think I'm gay. So this must be what the culture is like. When you're a young kid, gay, run away from home, an older man, out of the kindness of his heart, takes care of you because he understands that you're gay. And then you grew up and you're set free into the world. Didn't realize that it was an abusive pedophile, right? So then we started visiting other states. We went from New York, we'd go upstate, we'd go to Boston, we'd go to Connecticut. One time we went to Massachusetts and the guy had to go to work emerge. Don't go near the windows. Don't let anybody see you. And I'm like, what? I don't understand. You know, we wound up in Washington, D.C. This we must have been a senator or something. He had a huge townhouse in DuPont Circle, which is the gay area. And he had a uh, Citron Maserati and he had double California King bed. And we went around to pick up a couple of boys. And I was 14. They may have been 12, 13 years old. And five or six or eight of us were in bed while the guys were standing around watching. And All right, guys, you know, time to play and have fun, you know, get naked. So at a certain point, it was like, you know, th- this is not what my friends do. But I I, I, I I, tolerated it because I had nowhere else to go. Plus, he was fucking nuts. It was when they had Eric Rondanik in Chariot of the Gods and the Pyramids. And he used to tell me he talks to the space people and we have to leave a backpack and one of these days they're going to get him and when I said I'm going to run away he said we, we can find you with technology and yeah it, it, it was a really bad head trip until one day we were out on Fire Island we were dancing and I was da- there was this woman and I wound up dancing with her in the late 70s great disco music beginning of disco. And I said, what do you do? She said, I'm an astrologer. I said, oh, you know about the space people coming and taking us away. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, a Bob over there, who I live with, she goes, you live with him? How old is he? I said, 33. And she goes, oh, um, well, what did he tell you? Well, the space people and this and that. She goes, can you sneak away tomorrow? And I said, yes. And she had a boat po- parked on a dock in the next community. Know, she says, come over and tell me everything. I told her and she said you have to get away from this man because this isn't right and he sounds violent and she arranged my parents to come pick me up and take me home you know and i ran away the next day anyway but at least i was out of that situation so uh, i've been i've been through it laid relayed parlayed and souffled as we say over here I, 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 i've been through it and that's the only beginning of things
0: <laughs> well exactly i mean the next th- thing that uh, i think possibly maybe you found a family when you went into the club scene it was something more supposedly more different.
1: Yes, yes. Um, Early, early clubs, we had uh, Maxis, Kansas City and CBGB so we would see Aerosmith in their van, you know, play and then then go downstairs lean against the band and trying to get some pussy <laughs> you know we'd see uh, uh Debbie Harry was the bartender jump up on stage we got to see Talking Heads and uh um D- I remember Devo and Brian Eno and David Bowie announced them on stage at Max's and uh, we'd see all I-, I saw Bruce Springsteen get booed off the stage for an acoustic set so uh, th- New York was a small town uh, as far as clubs, it wasn't like now where there's clubs everywhere. So you were either into rock and roll, jazz, or classical. So I, we hung out at the rock and roll clubs, and that later broke into the new wave clubs and then the dance clubs. So a lot of people, that crowd morphed from one to the next to the next because that's what the trends were. So it became a little um, uh, uh, a clique of people that then suddenly with Studio 54 became famous people, you know what I mean? Hanging out with Andy Warhol, Keith Haring wasn't famous, the artist, but he hung out with us. Uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat was just this crazy black kid who was gay and straight and fucked anything that moved and was a painter, you know what I mean? So nobody was trying to be famous or fabulous. We were just weirdos, dysfunctional people, broken souls and artists that kind of had solace with each other because I guess we saw suffering in each other and we didn't judge each other when the rest of the world did. Nobody could function. Nobody could hold a job down, you know, barely paid my rent,
0: you know? How did, how did they deal with you as someone who's still, I presume you were still, you know, 15, 16, by the time you were going to clubs. And well, lying I lied.
1: To get in? I, I lied. I was 18, 19. So I was old, you know, because I was tall, uh, uh, they thought I was 18 or 19 years old. And I just kept that lie going up for years. And clubs, you didn't have to show ID to get in. As long as you weren't a 12-year-old, you were probably old enough. You know, and I had purple hair and, you know, a, a white shirt and a tie and a skirt. You know what I mean? Before anybody had purple hair in New York, we used to get it from London. We'd get crazy color flown over. And I remember I'd go walk up Fifth Avenue and the black girls would go, that's your natural color. I said, no, honey, green is not my natural color. Oh, I'd say yes. And oh, y'all come over here and take a picture of my daughter because they will not believe in New York City that people have red hair you know, or green hair. So um, we, were, we were artists and freaks and living in lofts. We didn't even live in uh, uh, apartments because it was, I, I think it was for fear of being found out that you were broken. So we lived in plain sight underground. Let's put it that way, right? So uh, uh, some people were 30 years old and some people were my age and lying about it. So you runaways and uh, off-duty drag queens (laughs) with pancake and stubble, you know. It was broken people that found solace amongst each other.
0: Do you think by being in this sort of community of artists that in a sense, this had to be your destiny?
1: No, because, well, it was survival. And later on in my 20s and 30s, I was very sad because I feel like I missed my childhood. I missed my teenagerhood. And I missed my 20s when people had romance and, and discovered other people intimately. And I was uh, you know, sleeping around or just so dysfunctional. Friends were hard to keep normal friends you know my crazy friends were crazy but because they were crazy they were hot and cold one day they're your friends, the next day you're not so it was very stressful but i i thought it's better that you know you lie to yourself it's better than being like them out there i'm not on the subway going to work every day you know i don't carry a briefcase so i suffer but i'm free i'm free <laughs> Well, it was terrible. It's terrible for a 14-year-old kid to be amongst 30-year-olds that are, um, you know, you can't, you don't have the neurons in your brain to comprehend abuse, sexual abuse. Somebody likes you only because they want to get in your pants, and you're a, a lonely child, and you want to, oh, thank God, you understand, you know, hug me. And then, you know, after your wipe to come off, they're out of there, and you go, wait a minute, what, what, this what, must be me. This must be me. This must be me. I'm doing something wrong. So it was very stressful, you know, very stressful and very dysfunctional, from my 14 to my 50s. Wow. You know, yeah. But 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 that's also why people are creative. I mean, Jean-Michel Basquiat was—he would have sex with girls and sex with boys, then go home and then make crazy paintings. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, Andy Warhol was socially dysfunctional weirdo and would get it out by you know painting stuff. You know what I mean? So. It, 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 would I change anything? I don't think so. But I tell you, I when I was a young kid, I wanted to be a veterinarian. <laughs> so would I be a veterinarian if I grew up normal and had a house and a picket fence and a, a wife, you know, living in the or, 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 or whatever it is? Uh, this made this this made this made me grow balls. I was not afraid to do stuff and. When you do your first crazy thing, I'm not talking about harmful thing. I'm talking about purple hair or, uh, you know, painting or, or doing some performance art. It's easy to do the next one. So you you, 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 you gain nerve, you gain confidence. You're, I was afraid of people because I was abused. But within myself, I'm like, fuck it. I'll figure out a way to do it. I built my own synthesizer because I didn't have the money to buy one. Or, um, hey, can you come and play on my record? I'm not a musician, but I, I'll do it. You know what I mean? And somehow or another, I did it.
0: <laughs> so, so what what, or who triggered uh, your musical odyssey?
1: Uh, I think listening to records at home, I started buying, well, after Grand Front Row and that was horrible, <laughs> I started buying funk records, Parliament, um, uh, funny enough I bought a Village People record not knowing their day or anything like that and wound up managing them for six years later on right? You know? but I bought Village People and I bought um, Foxy Get Off and I-, I was interested in funky music so it took me away from you know my horrible existence and because I had built a synthesizer and had a, a tape recorder and a synthesizer everybody in New York wanted to do a demo, call Manny you know, he's the guy, he's got a studio and go in there and, you know, he'll do it for $25, you know, they probably said he's desperate. He'll do it for $25 instead of spending a hundred. But I was like, how can I help you? You know, please use me for hours and give me $25. You know, I had, I had no boundaries. So because so many people came to me for work, um, I kind of got more and more and more interested in music. You know, being an actor and being a musician uh, is not that far apart. You're using your brain for creativity you visualize something and then you make it happen either with your body through acting uh as an artist through painting or at music through music you're either feeling something or you have a an idea or concept you want to portray so it's not that far apart from you know what i the path i was already on
0: had warhol already given you your name as it were by then so so,
1: so um there was a photographer chris makos and uh uh we're fooling around on a regular basis (laughs) sorry chris well everybody knows anyway um, he worked for interview magazine and he said i'm going to get you in the what's hot and happening column of interview andy warhol's interview magazine i said great and take some pictures and he said the pictures came back from the lab you want to go up to the andy warhol factory to um uh see the you know see how they came out i said sure and it was uh, in, in Union Square, 14th Street, uh, what's it, 18th and 19th Street in Manhattan, Union Square. And um, uh, I, I uh, we went up there, and we're looking at the contact sheets, and you know, with the little magnifying lens. And Andy Warhol walks in, and I had seen him at some of the clubs. I go, you know, hi, Mr. Warhol, you know, and like, and he's like, what's what's going on? And I said, well, uh, Manny Parrish, you know, is going to be in the thing. And we are looking at these pictures. He goes, Manny, that's too common, he said. We're going to change it to man, and I said, "Man?" He goes, "Yeah." My uh, man Ray was a photographer, so we're going to change it from Manny to Man. And I went, "Oh, okay, I don't care. Just put it, you know, put it in, you know, put it in the paper. And I call, call, uh, you know, call me Susan Blanche. You know, I don't care. <laughs> and I Just put it in the paper. I want my paper in the paper." And uh, it came out, and uh, it got a little traction. And somebody once introduced me to somebody couple of weeks later as man perished and i went oh that feels weird no, no 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 i'm manny you know no 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 and uh more and more people man perished right perish. and i was like okay i can kind of get used to it so hey man what's up and like yeah easy <laughs> so uh yeah that's how that happened andy world gave me my name and uh, it, when we would go to places like studio 54 all these andy was there and all these people and nobody bothered anybody people had weird names so it was just one of the one of the other ones, you know,
0: Sting, you know, uh, Slash,
1: you know, whatever, you know. You were you were one of them,
0: you know. Now you talked about that uh, you had your own synthesizer at home. Had you actually this? Had you actually then moved back into your parents by then? No, no, that was home and where I was living in, in a loft.
1: Uh, My first one, I built myself at that pedophile's place because he was a a tinkering, soldering geek. Um, Later on, um, I had them. In fact, I was living in a loft on 38th Street in Manhattan uh, with Joey Arias, who who some people may know that listen to you. Uh, He's a performer who worked with Klaus Nomi and uh, worked in my show later on. Um, And uh, uh, I needed a... ARC 2600 synthesizer, which at that time was about 2000 or $2,500. And I was friendly with my parents only when I needed something. And I called them up. And then I said, Mom, I need $2,500 for a synthesizer. She said, I'm not giving you that kind of money. And I said, Mom, if you don't give me that kind of money, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a male prostitute and sell drugs and raise the money that way. She said, uh, let me call you back. I'm going to speak to your father. <laughs> 20 minutes later, I got a phone call back. All right, meet us in the city at the music store. We'll get it for you. you know, so uh, <laughs> so the stuff that I had, as I moved along, I would buy synthesizers and, and more gear. And the more synthesizers and gear I bought, the more people came to record. So I made $50, $100, and I was able to eat. So uh, that's how I built my collection.
0: So later on, how did you actually uh, start Hip Hop Bebop? How did... How did you Okay, start So, so um, you know, a lot happened between then
1: and that, that yeah. time. Studio 54 and all that kind of came down from the ceiling. Madonna was my opening act. We used to get in every weekend with my friend. Uh, uh, she knew the doorman. And I said to her, were you fucking the doorman? This is just recently. She goes, oh, no, no, no. My father was in the mafia and I was selling Quailuves. I was the house dealer. And she, we were like 14 years, 15 years old, driving into Brooklyn. So we got into every party. So they knew me. So um, we went to play at Studio 54, Fiorucci party. Uh, an unknown singer but Donna was my opening act I went came down from the ceiling they loved the show so much wait a minute uh,
0: you came down from the ceiling What is that I mean, so, so, so
1: the day that I we did rehearsal at Studio 54 <laughs> I just come from the cemetery burying my mother I had lost my loft and uh, I was with David Bowie's manager and he dropped me because I delivered rock and roll music which I shouldn't have Delivered to Electro Records when they signed me for hip hop bebop because David Bowie's manager was a rock, rock Don't do synthesizers. Dance music is never going to be anything. Synthesizers are a fed. You need to get a guitar. So I produced a demo and they were like, what, 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 what did you what? No. <laughs> um, anyway, I played Studio 54. It was Fear ruchi's 10th, 10th, 10th anniversary party. And um, I showed up for rehearsal. They wouldn't let me in, by the way. I I had to bang on the door and go away. You know, I said, some security guard came out and was going to beat me up because I was bothering them. Anyway, they said, how do you want to make an entrance? And I don't know, my brain snapped. My my mother just died and, you know, I I had no place to live. And I said, I want to come down from the ceiling. And they went, okay, we can arrange that. There's a funny story, which I could tell or not tell, where I was stuck up there on a little... Parakeet perch for about a half hour, and I had a panic attack. And there was neon on either side of me, and they said, "Don't swing back and forth because there's twenty thousand volts of neon; you'll die, electrocuted." So they said, "We're gonna we're gonna lower you on the next song." And the DJ the DJ was a diva, and he wasn't ready to release it. So I'm up there in a corduroy outfit above the thousand watt light. You know, must have been one hundred and thirty degrees temperature hot, swinging back and forth. It was crazy. Anyway, I got lowered down. And uh, that night, Henry Kissinger was dancing with a a tranny and the Secret Service came and pushed her out of the way, pushed Brooke Shields in there. And if you Google, there's a picture of Henry Kissinger at Studio 54 dancing with Brooke Shields. But he was actually coming on to a tranny and didn't realize it. And the second time I played, George Lucas asked if I could do the. Um, opening part, the, the New York premiere party for Return of the Jedi, they had an after party at the studio and I came a second time. But um, you had asked me uh, how hip hop, bebop comes. So um, with the synthesizers, I couldn't read or write music. So I was doing, it's now called ambient music. I called them soundscapes. I would do sounds and blend them together and, you know, mix different sounds and make these tapes of blended music the 808 drum machine came out. And before that, drum machines were only those little bossa nova boxes that people would rehearse to. But the 808 drum machine from Roland allowed you to program beats. And I'm not a musician, but for the first time in my life, I realized I could be a one-man band like Kraftwerk, because I could program the beats, write the bass line, and uh, I, I got electric light orchestra's vocal quarter for twenty five dollars from a Music store because they didn't want it anymore. So now I could sing and play keyboards and 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 and, 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 and do all that kind of stuff. So um, I had done a soundtrack for a porn movie, and my friend was doing a really sleazy magazine, and they were talking to the director, and uh, he said he's looking for a guy for music. Why don't I I, I, I suggest you? And I said sure, sure. So. Uh, uh, I thought, well, I'm a teenage boy. I'm going to sit around all day with my dick in my hand, one hand in my dick and the other on the keyboard. I'm going to watch porn and make music. This is great, you know. So um, we wound up, um, uh, he called me. He said, uh, I need a, a, an hour, uh, 20 minutes of music here, five minutes of music there, seven for this scene, nine. I said, well, what about the movie? He says, oh, you don't get to see it. Just give me the music. Or I'll cut it in. Uh, uh, m- movie comes out, maybe... Um, two months later somebody says they're playing your song at a club called the anvil in new york and i was like what song they said uh heat stroke and i went can't be record isn't out go down there go down there i walk in there's a fire-breathing drag queen on stage she gets off a guy comes on stage and sits on giant dildos and squirts them across the other side of the room and everybody's applauding it's just like and i thought Oh my god i love this place (laughs) i I feel like i'm home you know because i came from andy warhol where everything is like performance art and this is like this is too crazy to be real it's like you know dinner and a show you know what i mean it's like it's amazing so i called up to the dj booth my song came on and i said that's my song no request no request i said no 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 that's my song what do you mean it's your song and i said um i did that song so he goes, I got that off. I said, where'd you get it? He goes off of a Betamax tape. I made a test pressing, an acid tape, and he was playing it with all the moaning and groaning from the porn movie, but he liked the music. He says, I had, there's a record label, and they'd love to put it out. It's called Disco Net, a DJ subscription service, and I'll take you up there tomorrow. And I signed a one page, one paragraph, grandmother's furniture, firstborn contract with no royalty. You know what I mean? It's mine, not yours. Get out. And come on, you don't need to go to a lawyer, would I screw you, you know, kind of thing. I'm still fighting over it, you know, 45 years. Did you read it? Did you ever read that? Uh, yeah, but I, I was 21, 22-year-old dysfunctional kid who, with a ninth grade education, and and therefore with the, the sum of the 60-day royalty at, at, at six points minus the damages, I'm like, what? Yeah. So I read it and I'm like, mm, I couldn't have afforded I couldn't afford a lawyer anyway. And I thought, ah, you know what? I'll just get this record out. Record comes out, it does pretty well. And then this guy says, I'm gonna send the he he was he, he was a executive in an advertising agency, he didn't really have a label yet. I'm gonna send the office boy. He knows about music, he's a DJ down to you. And why don't you play him some of your ta- your homemade tapes? So hip hop bebop was one of many songs that he listened to. And he said to me, we're gonna take you out to the fun house, which is an urban uh, uh, electro dance club in New York. We went out that night, we went into the DJ booth, which was like the size of a living room with couches and drinks and all that. And um, John Jellybean Benitez was DJing and next to him was a girl with black hair and hairy armpits with a t-shirt that said, I'm Madonna. And we used to call her the skank, right? You know, oh, he's with the skank. Arthur Baker is there, a couple of other people. I didn't know. They put on a song and everybody goes, whoo, 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 oh. And I thought, what the fuck? What's going on? Do we have to run to the exits? Oh, no, 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 no. He says that's what it's like when everybody likes a song here. Uh, they bark at it. I said, listen, why don't we take that, it wasn't called hip hop bebop, that, that piece of music with the beats and no structure. Why don't we bark at these guys and we'll make a test pressing? They'll bark back and we'll all have a laugh. End of day. So that's what we do. I had an on my eight track machine. We put it up on the 24 track. There was no song structure. So one track I'm going, hey, ho, hey, ho for five minutes. The next one, you know, uh, hip hop, hip hop, hip hop, hip hop, hip <laughs> you know, whatever. We, we, I think they did three 10-inch reels, which is what, 45 minutes and 60 minutes. So there was like three hours of, of combinations of outtakes. And they sat over the weekend doing MDA and Coke with a razor blade and edited together hip hop bebop. Comes out, it does really exceptionally well. And I was wondering why it did so well because the owner of the record company was putting little bags of cocaine inside of each Man Parish album and ma- ma- mailing it to Billboard DJs and to, and to radio stations with a thing like, I hook you up, now hook us up and report this and put it in. There. So that only went so far. And then I had an idea. There was a big radio station in New York, went out to like millions. You know, New York's like five, seven million people, went out to millions of people. I said, why don't I do the station call letters in vocoder, 92 K2. Nobody else had done that. I was the first person to do it. And in exchange, they would put any song that I played into heavy rotation a form of Without, um, as long as it didn't have dirty words in it. So hip hop, bebop, blow up on that station, and then they called the other station, and you guys are out of touch, and then two stations, and then you know it, it leapfrogs from there. You know what I mean? And becomes a record. I hated that record. I hated, hated, hated that record because I wanted to be like Depeche Mode. I wanted to be like Vince Clark. I wanted to have a song with a with you know with a verse and a chorus. And you know, I was listening to British electro pop at the time. And I was embarrassed that this was just dogs barking, hey-ho, no song structure. But if you listen to it, it's about the sound, which is my basis of the ambient music that I was doing. You could follow kind of the, the threads through there, you know what I mean? But when that came out, I was, fear, I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> but do you, do you perceive it differently today? Uh, it took me a very long time because I thought people were crazy. And uh, um, after the record company screwed me, I walked away from them. I spent about 10 or 15 years. Well, I had a party in New York called Sperm at a Burkle called the Cock. <laughs> uh, which was, I mean, it's it sounds worse than it was, but it was actually worse than it sounds. You know what I mean? It wasn't supposed to be a as wild of a party is, but if you go to a party called Sperm, you're putting your feet up on the furniture or you're walking around naked with your sneakers on, which pe- people did for, you know, I, I'd be at the DJ booth and somebody would walk past me and I'm like, holy fuck, they're naked. You know what I mean? It's like, so... I had very wild party, but um, um, up until then, I didn't realize the impact that that record had, right? And I just thought, well, you know, it's, it's a dance record. But then I started getting interviews and DJs were going, you, you can understand that was a breakthrough record. And, you know, people, uh, it's the reason I got into music and nothing sounded like that at the time and so, and so on and so on and so on. And it's after a bunch of people talking, I thought, well, maybe there's something there. You know what I mean? So now I look at it differently. Uh, I still don't 100% understand it because I'm on the inside looking out, but it was one of those things, you know, was I in the right place at the right time? Was I a musical genius? You know, did the gods above filter through me and made the music? I, I don't know. I don't know. But I never got paid. And I to the well, state, down been, to the manager, it, it
0: was Bowie's manager and he, he completely, no, no, he,
1: he said, you leave that behind. That's not important. I'm going to get you on electric records and you're going to have a real career. You know what I mean? So I didn't I couldn't fight that stuff. I didn't have the money. You know, a, a lawyer would have been five thousand dollars of, um, you know, a, a, of uh, uh, retainers. And I barely. What had were they money spending to, the money on? Uh, oh, so um, so the record company. I walked away because I wasn't getting paid, and he went from a broom closet in his advertising agency to quitting it. And him and Raul, the 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 off- the, the, the uh, 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 mailboy, uh, they they went to an office and had like fifteen people working for them. So he wanted me back because the goose that laid the golden eggs is no longer around. He said, "Let me come pick you up." I'm like, "I don't want to talk." And Raul said, "Come on, talk to talk to him, talk to Captain Mike." Captain Mike, yeah, he's got a plane. I got it. okay, all right. So he says, "I'll come pick you up. i will go have lunch." Picks me up in a uh, top-of-the-line Porsche with a hand-carved dashboard. We get in it. We drive out to a private airport and get into this, this 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 private plane. And I'm like, "What the fuck?" So we fly from New York all the way up to Boston, Martha's Vineyard. We have lunch and come on, come on, Benny. You know we love you. You know I said you haven't paid me. Oh, it'll be different this time. And we get back in the plane and we take off. And I said, wow, this plane is like really expensive. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. Do another record. You'll buy me another one. And at that point, I went, holy fucking shit. That's my Porsche. This is my airplane. That office with 20 people working, I did that. And I looked out the window and I wouldn't speak to him I got in the car. I looked out the window and wouldn't turn my head even straight. And it was weird silence. And he dropped me off. I slammed the door. I never talked to him again, you know, and ironically, years later, he died of AIDS and I went to go help him because he was lost in, in, in in Houston because I'm a nice guy. Right. But uh, yeah, that was, I I walked away from music. So I didn't know the impact that boogie down Bronx, hip hop, bebop. I mean, Boogie Down Bronx was another big one that was done in my I I lost my loft I moved back to Brooklyn to my father's house my mother died I was living in the apartment above which we owned a two-story house and the bedroom was my recording studio and the kid was a kid from the neighborhood and he and I said we're doing this track we need a rhyme on it and he came up and did that all in one take Boogie Down Bronx you know and you know people say well because of you the Turn boogie down bronx i'm like eh. well because I, I spoke to people like todd terry and those people and hey us detroit guys we used to play techno tracks you invented techno i mean i, I didn't do any of, I, you know if you want to say it i'll take the credit but i was just a struggling kid and i don't call myself a musician because i can't read or write music if you look at my social media it says man parish artist i'm not pulling a prince trip But I can't sit in a room with musicians. I don't know what key my shit is in. I have a program that I have to drop the music in that tells me it's an E flat. And then I got to go look on a chart to see what notes are black and what's a white. To this day, 50 years, I've been in the music business 50 years. So I'm uh, I'm doing an art installation in New York And it involves a glory hole (laughs) with audio behind it. You sit on a chair and you listen in the glory hole. (laughs) I'm not going to tell dirty stories. So my stuff has always been like performance art, art stuff. My sperm party every weekend had, um, uh, we we would uh, completely, we'd take a storefront and we'd move the furniture around and put up portable walls and light it with lasers. And uh, we'd have live painters and naked dancers and performance artists and stuff like that. So I'm more on the art side of thing, but, I have 147 records out there. I just saw the other day. So
0: you know, I just want to mention the the 80s because when I was in London in the 80s and used to go to gay clubs then, and then in 92 yeah. I went back to this gay club and interviewed the owner who was a straight Greek guy. Which club? And which, club? He, which, which club? Oh, it was Lasers. It was in North London, and oh. uh, it was they had a, an evening called uh, Bolts. I think it was called, and it was just like well, Bo- well
1: Bolts is the record label. Bolts. They that was bolts was a the record they had to put out man to man.
0: Yeah, well, that's every week they would have really great artists like Divine would be yeah. on stage, which and I so and was so supposed
1: so. to do his record, and that uh, I was meeting with his manager that night. He went out to California. He was going to be Peg's mother, unmarried with children, the TV show. And he choked on a sandwich or his vomit and died. And I was supposed to do his next record. And I thought, oh my God, millions of people. I'm finally going to make money. And sure enough, that happened, you know. I was also supposed to do Sylvester, but he hated synthesizers. So I I, I messed up on that one, too.
0: But the thing about the 80s was that uh, I remember, like, 10 years later, when I go back, I asked the guy, you know, this club was so successful. Why did you close it? And he said, everyone died. And yeah, in well, New York, yeah. you were the epicenter. In Yeah, a sense. yeah. So... so, so that
1: happened when, when AIDS happened in New York, it wasn't even cold AIDS. It was cold grid, gay related immune deficiency. And friends of ours started to get sick. They, so and Frank's in the hospital. What do you mean? He's got all, suddenly he's got all these um, black bruises all over his body. And they're saying it's a cancer called Carposy sarcoma. And they don't know what it is, but they're starting to notice this in gay guys. And it's like, did you kiss somebody and get that? Did you get? Fucked in the ass and get it did you did you hold hands and get it did you eat or drink from a cup did you get it from a toilet seat or a doorknob so when people ask me about uh, covid i'm telling i tell them it's aids 2.0 for me you know what I mean? because but the only difference is now there's a government there that's trying to stop it Well, we were a bunch of puffs and a bunch of fags and queers and who cares let them die you know i remember visiting klaus Nomi and, and other friends in the hospital you would go up and get off the elevator and all the rooms, the doors to all the rooms, they, they, they would isolate a, a floor and all the rooms were closed. And the nurses were in practically space outfits because they didn't know what it was. And you had to put on paper, a full jumpsuit, rubber gloves, and they taped your hands. They, they gaffer taped, you know, your, your, your wrist. And we had to have masks on and face shields and stuff covering our hair because they didn't know what it was. And all the doors had the biohazard doors, signs on it. And I remember going in the room and Klaus was sitting there, setting up and he had spots all over him and he was freaked out. And I said, let me give you a hug. He goes, no, 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 no. I said, no, I'm going to give you a hug. Nobody's, you know, don't touch them and don't go near them. And they are lepers. You know what I mean? And I gave him a hug and he held on this a little extra long, like, Oh, you know, somebody's talking nobody else in the room did everybody else like you're crazy i'm like no i don't care so if i die i died but, but i but i that's the kind of person i am i have a heart because i've been through a lot of pain um did you and, feel guilt and, surviving because- no but yeah and you know what's even weirder is i mean everybody that i slept with i was no angel you know i was a man you know there were, there were bath houses glory holes sex clubs uh, you know uh, cruising areas bushes I even went to Brompton Cemetery once when I was in England with man to man. I remember my cruising days, but I, I'm like, you have sex in the cemetery? Why? Is that weird? <laughs> like that's where we go, and make sure you get out by five o'clock. Otherwise, you have to climb the fence to get out because I'll lock you in. I'm like, this is insane. But um, I'm not HIV positive, and I don't know why. Everybody that I dated or or, or was with, they wanted to do some sort of tests on me they believe some people may be immune to it. So I'm not going out for risky behavior to put it to the test, but for some reason, I never got it. Did I feel guilty? No, I feel blessed and lucky that I never got it. But I turned that guilt and that weirdness into this incredible compassion of what can I do to help? Are you okay? Um, uh, It was the gay community because Reaganomics and whatever it was, uh, the political stuff, wouldn't uh, support people that were dying. So what they did is um, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, I think, had got, uh, is it Katzenberg? Somebody had uh, God's love we deliver. A lot of these people were in walk up tenement apartments that two weak to get down to eat. So they would, they bought old ice cream trucks that had refrigeration and they would cook food in their home and put it into takeout trays. So these guys would drive it around and feed people, you know. Uh, I I held a couple of people as they died, you know, uh, um, because there was nobody. Their families wouldn't take them home to die at home. Would family take care of because either, well, you're gay, you're going to burn in hell. Or one person said, we can't take you home because what would the neighbors think? Right. So we became a bunch of tough old birds I, I jokingly tell people you know are you okay i'm like yeah i got a brick in my purse you know if i need it you know what i mean i'll just hit you with my pocketbook it's got a brick. i was raised by drag queens in the village people i i i i, I can i can cut the mustard if i have to <laughs> you know what I mean? it's like yeah, yeah, yeah you toughen tough enough but you know you also become incredibly sensitive i mean i fucking cried tv commercials and forget about the movies i have to go in the second or third row at, at noon when there's nobody there and crouch down like oh my god and i get out of the movies i just saw a saddest movie what did you see star wars are you kidding me you know what i mean so it makes you very sensitive which also is good for the music because it, it leads a lot of depth to it so one person the, the- stuff was really hard really really hard Really, One person really that
0: you met in your life who, it's a it's such a fascinating story, was Michael Eilig. Uh, Michael Eilig. So, so yeah, okay. <laughs> so, where did you meet him, first of all? Well, originally, he
1: was a club kid. So, if you've seen Party Monster, any of those movies, and if anybody out there doesn't know who Michael Eilig is, he's a, um, a club kid, kind of like uh, in Europe, uh, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Oh my God, uh, 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 Kenny, Kenny, uh, uh, any of those club kids—they were paid to be, you know, fabulous in a club. They would come in outfits, you know, like like, like the Boy George crowd. Yeah, you, uh, Steve Strange, who I got to work with before he died. Thank God. Um, but you—you paid—they were paid to dress up and create havoc in clubs uh, because people would come and watch the show. So I knew him from clubs. He knew me. New York was still a small town, so. I was doing records. I had my etiquette. He knew me. So that whole thing goes down where uh, he he uh, kills his drug dealer, goes to jail, comes back out. And about four days later, I get a phone call. And I didn't recognize the number. And he goes, man, perish. And I went, yeah. He goes, this is Michael Alec. And I, I was like, "My dr- Michael Alec? He goes, I, I said something like, are you sure? He goes, oh, no, I'm out of jail. I want to talk to you. And I thought, if I t- if I do a record with this guy, everybody that I know will disown me because it was a really horrible situation. But the other side of me is I gotta fucking talk to him and ask him what happened from you know from the source. This is amazing. So I picked him up in Manhattan. He was in jail so long. He didn't know what a cell phone was. He didn't know what a computer was. He didn't know what the internet was. He was learning and telling me all this stuff in the car. Like I, they gave me a cell phone. I'm really not sure how to use it. And people have computers now. And I'm like, Oh yeah. they have computers. And and you could dial on the internet. I said, yeah, Michael. Yeah. That, you know, cable TV. And you know, he was in jail for many, many years. So he had caught up his drug deal. So he goes, I guess you're going to want to know the story. And I'll see if I can do a condensed version. I'm like, Fuck yeah. And for two hours, we drove around New York. And I remember it was raining. My windshield wipers were on. And I wasn't even looking out the window. He said, well, you know, we were all high and um, uh, uh, my drug dealer wouldn't shut up. So I think we hit him over the head. We threw something at him or hit him over the head to jokingly like, you know, shut up and banged him on the head, wound up killing him. And we kept saying, wake up, wake up. So they went to the police station all high with makeup on and half and drag and whatever. And they said, we killed somebody. This is from Michael Allen telling me this. And the the cop said, sure you did. And I'm, you know, and I'm princess Diana, get out of here. And then they went back to the apartment and the the, the angel, his name is laying there with blood. And like, what are we going to do? Let's call the police again. And they said, if you, if you, if you call us one more time, we're going to arrest you. So they did more drugs and they said, we got to do something, put them in the bathtub, and let's figure out what to do. They came back the next day. The body was starting to decay. And they said they did more drugs, and they have been up for two or three days, hallucinating that we have to cut them up and put them in a garbage bag. And they do that, right, which is unbelievable. They put it in a garbage bag and hail a taxi. And, and of course, the bag's dripping blood. <laughs> and they tell the taxi to take them down to the river. And they throw the bag in the river. Of course, the bag opens up and like a hand comes floating up to the surface. And they say, take me back home. Of course, the cab driver calls the cops. And that's how they got arrested. <laughs> so, I mean, my life is full of stories like this. So it's fucking amazing. You know, see, I often wonder why me. But now I'm telling these stories on I have Man stories on YouTube.com. And I'm telling these stories because they're so fucking crazy that you know, it's like, I, I I can't believe it myself, but all this crazy shit happened. Old famous people, Michael Alex, you know, uh, I'm in uh, Halston's apartment, you know, on that couch that's on the Netflix special and sitting next to me is Liza Minnelli and then Diana Vreeland from Vogue. And then uh, Bianca Jagger and Mick Jagger and my friend Linda and then Andy Warhol and then Liz, you know, and, and, and on and on and on. And there's all these cootie, cootie.
0: throwaway lines that you do like Madonna. Yeah, I was know, but it's like, I it was mean... like it's,
1: it's like throwaway lines, but that, but that was just like normal. And they're doing like giant uh, uh serving platters full of coke until like ten o'clock in the morning, grinding their jaws. You know what I mean? It's like how how, how did a kid from Brooklyn who wasn't even that famous then or anything wind up in these situations well my friend linda was what was their drug dealer <laughs> you know what i mean at 1450 but you know I, I i toured the world with the village people you know and, and and now i'm going from a fan to somebody who's producing their shows live on stage around the world you know i flew the concord i worked with Boy george michael jackson gloria Gaynor, a roberta flack a steve strange steve bronski i man to man you know so and, and in fact if you're from england Around that time, 96, when Bolts was happening, I arrived in London and this crazy queen who worked for Bolts Records, um, I I, had called Paul Zone. he put that record out without asking me. My name was not supposed to be on that record because I just had a record out and he used my name to get, climb the chart. So, all right, come to London, we'll work it out. So I get off the plane and this crazy queen says, well, we have to go for an interview. I said, what What interview? He goes, see all those people over there And, and I'm in the airport. All this so that that's the British press and they want to speak to you. And I said, why do they want to speak to me? He goes, oh, don't worry, darling. I told them you're fucking Madonna. I said, what? No, 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 no. I look like shit. I'm I have sweatpants on a T-shirt. My hair. He goes. I just told them that you arrived on the Concord because you were up all night, you know, mixing your next record. And I said, give me your sunglasses. I'm not going to say anything. He goes, don't worry, darling. I'll 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 cover it. First word out of. Her mouth is so. What's it like having sex with Madonna? And I went, oh fuck. He goes, Manny's got scratch marks over his back because he does her so well. And I thought, this is fucking crazy. I said, oh my. I start shaking. And then the next question is, what do you, uh, What about Sean Penn? He goes, while they're having sex, they tell Sean Penn jokes and they call him Poison Penn. And I thought, this is getting crazier and crazier. And they said, well, how does Madonna? And she wasn't super, super famous. She was really famous, but not the level she's on now. And then it was like, um, um, how how does Madonna get to Manny's house in Brooklyn? Well, uh, Manny has a maid named Beulah who has an old Ford, wraps her in a blanket and a sheet, pulls right up to the side door of Manny's house and quickly opens the door. And Madonna runs in and they have sex for hours and hours and hours. And I thought, this is so crazy. They're not going to print this. So we were staying, I was staying in like some horrible, in, in, in Earl's court, some horrible like rooming house where you put 5P into the, into the uh, thing just to get the heat. You know what I mean? And he knocks on the door and puts down the newspaper. And I'm on the front cover of the bottom half of News of the World. Madonna longs for my baby. Man, Parish, Kiss and Tell Lover. And then I'm on the Standard and one of the other papers, too, about how I'm fucking Madonna. And he said, are you hungry? Do you want to go for breakfast? I said, I'm starving. He goes, oh, I've arranged a whole week of interviews for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, so we don't have to pay for it for you doing this thing. So after three or four, he was answering all the questions. I said, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. I'm, can I, I didn't know, can I get arrested? You know what I mean? They're like, like, am I in trouble? So he goes, perfect idea. We're going to have you in a hotel room with a girl in bed. And we're going to find a hotel with connecting balconies. And we're going to have the photographer go to the next room and climb out on the balcony and catch you in bed with, Cheating on Madonna, and that they'll put it in the papers, and that'll be the end of it. So I'm lying in bed with this girl, and we're laughing, and she's got a tube top on. I have my shirt off. She goes, "There's someone on the balcony." Someone on the balcony. I turn around, and go, "Hey, you!" And I'm pointing, and my mouth goes, "Ooh!" And they snap a picture. It winds up in the in the photo in the thing the next day, and it wasn't the end of it. I mean, Madonna's brother came after me and wanted to get really. Uh, nothing from Madonna. Uh, you know and then somebody printed a clown sitting on a log it's that fat old man parish lying and you know and all that kind of stuff so uh, yeah you know uh, uh, that was that that was a fun little period
0: you know on on something because when you talked about at the beginning you said that you've had therapy and and I just wonder how I mean I've had six therapists in my life and i'm still in therapy trauma therapy yeah i I do that and it's yeah yeah yeah. sexual trauma
1: therapy yeah
0: um and the the how how has that worked for you and how much do you think you are now in a state where you said maybe you could have a good relationship maybe things could well well
1: well, well, i'm i'm in a relationship for 22 years or something like that and we got married as, as you know, I, I got old enough for, 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 you know, for, you know, the pension, the social security. It's like, let's get married. We make more money this way. But we've been together t- 22 years, 23 years. We're like a bunch of old lesbians. We have, you know, dogs and stuff for children. You know what I mean? And uh, uh, I, I, this is my studio. I don't think this is a video thing, but there's a studio behind me. I do more work now than ever. Um, I had a lot of, let's put it this way. I had more issues in Reader's Digest, okay? I mean, I would always have a dream of a man in a dark hallway, you you know, trying to hurt me. I was afraid that people were going to break into the house and harm me. I had weird neuroses. At one point, I had strange claustrophobia in elevators. I had panic attacks for 20 years. and, And I refused to take drugs because I didn't want anything controlling me because I had been controlled for so long. So I suffered for a very long time. I was also a very difficult person to be friends with because I was very needy and very broken. So I didn't have boundaries or I didn't know other people's boundaries. So it was hard to be around me. I thought you had friends for three months and it was normal. And you went on to your next group of friends, you know. So therapy has helped me understand the core, the core, why I have anxieties and fears and problems. And as though it's like an onion. And you, hi, I'm Manny, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not an addict, but I'm an alcoholic, like you do in a 12-step program. Once you realize you've got a problem, there's two ways to fix it. You could take chemicals like Prozac and Paxils, or you could do cognitive behavior therapy, which literally, it's almost like the Stockholm syndrome. You reprogram your brain through repetition to change the way the literal neurons program your brain. And I choose the latter. And it takes a little bit of time, but I'm in a much healthier place. I don't feel guilty or bad uh, or or I feel lost because I lost my childhood and sad that I had to go through it. And I didn't have I I smiled on the outside. I cracked a lot of jokes. But on the inside was a very broken boy that never grew up, you know, didn't have a mother. I never got hugged, never got kissed, didn't have you know, bonding friendships like you do through your teen years or beautiful relationships in your twenties and your thirties, mine were dysfunctional. And then the days, weeks later. So the therapist therapy now has explained to me why there was so much dysfunction and I'm piecing it together. And when I get panic attacks and when I get dysfunctional, I have what they call tools. So I recognize patterns now. Um, Um, Ooh, you know, Manny, you're a little manic, or you haven't slept, or uh, you know too much caffeine, and you're and, and you're speeding all over the place. Time to calm down. And the person that I'm with is a rock solid idiot. No, not, you know, I mean he's just like a stone. It's like, you know what? Chill out. I'm like, oh oh yeah, all right. I'm gonna right. I'm bouncing. Come on back, Manny. You're you're bouncing on the walls. So with all that. I'm better than I've ever been before. There's sadness that'll never go away. There's pain and fears that'll never go away. But it's like diabetes. You manage it. You, you always have the disease, but you, uh, you learn how to manage your problems. You know what I mean? A diabetic doesn't eat a cake because they know their sugar's going to go through the roof or they're going to go into a coma. Well, there's cert- I don't stay up past it's not a time thing. I If I've slept a four hours over three days, I make sure I take the next day off. Or if I'm feeling like I can't deal with anything, I chill the fuck out. Let the world blow up. I don't give a fuck. Before, it was like, no, no, no. I have to fix this. Or somebody needs my help. And, uh, you know, so boundaries. I've learned boundaries. And I've learned to... Um, uh, uh, I- I'm a better person. I'm more focused. Yeah, I, I have. We have a place in New York, and I'm down here in Florida. I do more work than ever, more work than ever. I'm putting out albums every two two months or three months, and I'm doing remixes and you know art installations
0: and stuff. So the therapy has helped. Brilliant. Well, look, look, Manny, I just want to say thank you because you've had an enormous contrib- contribution to popular culture. You've it also still makes me feel weird. I don't understand that. I, 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 I you
1: know. I say to my, my therapist, I say to other people, if I was more of a cunt, I'd probably be more famous. Because when I walk in a room, I kind of stand off in the corner. I don't pull my dick out and say, I'm man parish, suck me. You know what I mean? Like like a lot of people do. I, I don't, oh, you're a man parish, you contributed to culture. And I'm like, oh, me, oh, I'm too shy. You know, I, I, because I associate that with bad attitude and bad ego and bad personality. So you gave me a wonderful compliment. But my first reaction is, oh, no, 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 no. I'm just, you know, I'm Manny. So uh, thank you for the compliment, because if I don't, my therapist will kill me for not saying that. But uh, I do mean it. Thank you for the compliment. You know what I mean? And I've never got paid, but it's interviews like this. And I say this over and over again, which mean the world to me, because you're interested in my story. Hopefully
0: Netflix will be interested in my story. Man That's Harry's what I was going to say. I look forward to not just the 10 part one series, well, well, but the well, you know, you know what 20 series
1: on Netflix. Sp- Sp- Spider-Man is a kid who lives in <laughs> Queens and goes to school during the day and at night he saves the world. I want to do, Manny is a kid that lives in Brooklyn, goes out at night and hangs out with Andy Warhol and gets back on the train and comes back to Brooklyn and has you know breakfast with his you know with, with his mom so i want to do that kind of a series but yeah thank you thank you thank you for 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 thinking that i'm relevant thank you